sorry everybody for being a little bit uh, off our game today, but uh, it's a little weird to broadcast uh, a day in advance and uh, in the bedroom of an apartment you've never been in before. So it's a little strange, but thanks for bearing with us uh, through some rough spots in the music and hopefully not too many rough spots in the talk today. Finishing up our talk uh, and our series on the life of Joseph. As we finished this, I was thinking about a trip I took to Alaska when I was in my 20s, 25 years ago now. And I went to the Kinross Gold Mine just outside of Fairbanks. It's this massive uh, operation. 50,000 acres are being strip mined there. And they give every assurance that they put everything back when they're done, but we'll see about that. It's the largest single mining, gold mining operation in North America. Kinross has been there for years, and they process 100,000 tons of material every day. So they have these dump trucks that are larger than the house I grew up in. They take all of this material, blast it up from the ground. They put it on a giant conveyor belt. It goes into this mill that is just truly massive. And this mill looks like a very noisy laundromat, except what's tumbling through all the washers and dryers uh, are rocks. And boy, it's loud. And they rock and they gyrate and they break down and they burst and they break and then they go into smaller gyrators until finally you have all of this rock that's pulverized into dust. And then in the dust they add some water, they add some cyanide, they add some other chemicals and it just sits there like this giant gumbo. But as those chemicals be begin to do their work in that dust, it extracts the gold dust out of it. Then they pull all that gold out. They melt it down into gold bars and ship it off to refineries all over the world and, and sell their finished product. Here's what I, I learned while I was there. To get enough gold out of the ground at Kinross outside of Fairbanks, and this is not a tin pan operation like the first Klondike uh, seekers that went to Alaska. To get enough gold that's in my wedding band right here, they have to move, excavate, and pulverize material that equals the weight and size of the Statue of Liberty for this much. It must be worth it. It's an expensive operation. It's a pulverizing operation. But the goal in the end is apparently worth every penny of the cost. It has made me read differently words from St. Peter, he said this, Be glad. There is wonderful joy ahead even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. And it's thundering and lightning outside. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. So we all come into the world, it seems, made of stone. Uh, I'm just an old chunk of, chunk of coal Billy Shaver wrote in the country song, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. But in order to become a diamond, it takes a lot of crushing. It takes a lot of pulverizing. It takes a lot of processing. And it's not easy. But somewhere within all of us, 
there is a faith, a hope, and assurance that we're not even conscious of. We don't even know that we have it. But through life and through circumstances, through family, through good decisions, poor decisions, through the circumstances of just living, God pulls out of us what is good and best. He sees it there sparkling, and he's going to extract it, even when it's difficult. I say all that as the conclusion to this series on the life of Joseph, because that is exactly what Joseph experiences in all of these weeks, in all of these chapters at the end of Genesis. We saw how his story began. He's an insignificant player. He's just a kid. He's a child, a teenager in the backwoods of Palestine, spoiled, pampered, condescending. He didn't possess many redeeming qualities at first, but certainly God saw something within him. The very God who gave him the dreams saw the dream that Joseph could become. And he takes this twisting, winding road of betrayal and abandonment and slavery and prison and suffering and false accusations. And through all of this, he emerges on the other side with character and strength and faith. God was always at work in his life. God gave, provided, and fulfilled the dreams that he had. And life didn't always make sense, but in time, he saw that there was some meaning behind it. Something shiny and beautiful was within him that God was drawing out. And that's his explanation. That's how he makes meaning of everything that went wrong. That in all that has gone wrong, somehow God is going to pull the right out of it. I'm sure his brothers were glad to hear that that was his conclusion. After they bury their father, their collective concern turns to their own deaths, meaning, are they going to die now? Is that death going to be sooner rather than later? Quoting from Genesis, Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they conclude. Thinking that it, that it had only been Jacob, their father, staying alive that kept them alive. But now that Jacob is in the ground somewhere, buried, they think Joseph's going to get us now. He was just holding back out of respect for our father. You know, I really, I really like having, Cindy and I were talking about this the other day, I really like having Irish roots because the Irish people are a lot of fun. Oh, the drinking, of course, legendary. The storytelling, the leprechauns, the joy, St. Patrick, all of those things. But if I didn't have Irish roots, I would want to be Italian. I, if there's a group of people that live larger, celebrate better, eat better, drink better, if there's any group of people in the world that does it better, I don't know who they are. And uh, so maybe if I had another chance, I'd come back... Uh, you know, as Guido or somebody like that. Uh, and I know as stereotypes go, not only do they have a good time, they can really hold a grudge. At least that's what all the mobster movies tell us. And man, I love a mobster movie. I'm thinking right now of The Godfather, the second one, the second movie, Godfather 2, that rare sequel that may have outperformed the original. Uh, Keaton, Pacino, De Niro, du Duval, all these legends are in this movie. And Pacino, of course, plays Michael Corleone. He's, he's the new godfather, 
having succeeded his father over the crime family. And he is betrayed out of jealousy by his older brother, Fredo. There's a parallel here to Joseph's life. Maybe there's some mafioso in the Joseph family. And there's that crazy scene in Cuba. Michael kisses Fredo right in the face on New Year's Eve and says, you broke my heart, Fredo, you broke my heart, which is just fantastic. Years later, their mother is dying. Fredo comes home for the first time in forever. And Michael puts his arms around him and seems to forgive him. Everybody's happy. The family has been restored. Fredo betrayed Michael, but now Michael is going to let him come back home. Oh, but there's a glint in Michael's eye that tells us something different. Not long after their mother is dead, the funeral mass is said and she's laid to rest. Fredo goes fishing on Lake Tahoe and has a drowning accident. Of course, we all know that Michael whacks him. So maybe Joseph's brothers are thinking the same thing. Dad's been laid to rest. The last funeral mass has been said. And now we're on our own with the godfather brother. More powerful than a godfather. More powerful than any gangster. He's second in command of all of Egypt. He could do anything that he wanted. And so they come and they throw themselves at Joseph's feet. There are two things in, two images in the latter half of Genesis that we need not ever forget. Two things are always happening. Number one, Joseph's brothers are always throwing themselves on their faces in front of him, fulfilling that dream that he had as a teenager. They're always bowing down. And the second thing that's always happening is Joseph is always crying. At every turn, he's crying, he's weeping over restoration, over the harm that's been done to him, over the, over the forgiveness that's in his, in his, in his heart. He, he weeps when he sees his father. And here this last time in the book of Genesis, the brothers show up, throw themselves before Joseph, essentially begging for their lives, and Joseph is weeping. And he explains to them in one statement the explanation behind his complicated life and behind their own actions and what God has been up to. And he says it like this. You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. Now that's quite a statement. And certainly it's not a blanket explanation for everything that goes wrong in life. But it was Joseph's way of making meaning out of his life. It helped him make sense of some things, of course, in the aftermath, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it can help us. I think it can help us all so often to do the same. Joseph understood his life to be a part of something bigger. The injustice that he suffered at the hands of his brothers was unjust to be fair but it was also God's means of ultimately saving their lives and saving the entire family. They would have all been dead of starvation if all those years ago they had not sold Joseph into slavery and he took that twisted, winding road that he took to get where he was. And this day in the palace following the burial of their father, 
is not the first time Joseph says this. If you go back to Genesis 45, where Joseph first identifies himself as that long-lost brother, he used a phrase. He said to his brothers, you sold me. And then a few verses later, he uses the phrase, God sent me. And he holds these two together. You sold me. You treated me wrong. You did something to me that was unfair and unjust. However, God sent me. God was involved in this. And Joseph never explains or tries to tear those two things apart. He holds them both together as the same act. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. And this sort of brings us to this whole question of of God's actions in our lives and our actions. How do do they, they, they fit together? Human decisions and this sort of divine providence where God is at work. It's an old example, but it's one that A.W. Tozer gave, and it's one that, that I love. He says, imagine that an ocean liner leaves New York, and it is headed for Liverpool. And as it makes this journey across the sea, God has determined where it will dock. God knows where everything is going. And we are on this boat. We are on this ship. And we are free to move about. We can lounge on the deck. We can use the pool. We can stay in our cabin. We can watch the waves. We can go to the buffet. And Tozer doesn't say this, but I would say we could even throw ourselves overboard if we wanted. We could even attempt to charge the captain's quarters and try to take over the ship if we wanted. No, we're not in charge of where everything is going, but we have this tremendous freedom within that context. And now quoting him, he says, if I can find it here, he says this, And so it is, I believe, with man's freedom and God's power, the ship of God's design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed. God moves unhindered toward the fulfillment of His eternal purposes. We do not know all that is included in this, but we know enough, and that gives us hope, and it gives us assurance as we freely live the lives we have been given to live. That's a great picture of Joseph's life, of your life, of my life, of any life. So don't sweat too much over God's perfect will, God's perfect will that Christians can get so obsessed with. You are living within the confines of your place in time and history. You have boarded this great vessel on its way to wherever it is going, but God is bigger God is more surprising. God is more mysterious than you can know. Do the will of God that you know to do. Love your neighbor. Share the good news. Be thankful. Practice what is good. Keep your integrity and follow Jesus. Those things I just listed, about a half a dozen things that I just listed, those are every time in the New Testament we are told this is the will of God. 
You want to hear them again? Love your neighbor. Share the good news. Be thankful. Practice the good. Keep your integrity. Believe in and follow Jesus. And live your life trusting God with all the heavy lifting. Trusting God to work it out. For lack of a better phrase, just go with it. God's great ship of Zion keeps plying the waters, sailing over the horizon to the next adventure, the next world. You don't need no ticket, just get on board, is what I sang earlier. And stay on board. Find your place on that vessel. Find your role. Be the unique, beautiful soul that you were created to be. Stop rowing against the current. Stop wondering what it would be like to be on a different boat at a different time, in a different place, with different opportunities. This is it. Here is where you are, and now is what you have. Go with it. God intends it for good even those things that aren't good. So that in the end, at whatever destination your life arrives at, all will be made well and all manner of things will be made well. That's what Joseph would want for you. This ancient hero that we've spent all this time with, I know he would want it for you because that's what he wanted for his own family. When the book of Genesis closes, Joseph is on his deathbed. And he calls his surviving brothers to himself. He calls his immediate family to himself. And he says this. Soon I will die. But God will surely come to help you. And lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land He promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel, his brothers, swear an oath. And he said, When God comes to help you and lead you back, take my bones with you. Take me home. Joseph lived long enough to see the changes that were coming. When he was young, he could always see the future, it seems. When he was young, his abilities, his smarts, his plan saved Egypt. And now that he is old, he is a has-been. And when he dies, all the respect and thanksgiving that Egypt had for the Hebrews will turn to animosity. And Joseph's descendants will become enslaved. His descendants would experience exactly what he endured. They would be enslaved in a foreign country. They would be wrongly exploited. They would be forgotten in the dungeons and the deserts of Egypt. They would suffer through no fault of their own. And it would take the same kind of tenacity, the same kind of dreaming to endure. And when that day of liberation finally arrived, and my friends, it would take four centuries for that liberation to come, they would carry the hope, the faith, the bones, and the dreams of Joseph with them to the promised land. I learned this from Brian McLaren. The Greek word in the phrase, thy will be done, will, can also be translated wish. 
You could say, thy kingdom come, thy wish come true. But that sounds a little bit like Aladdin and the lamp. The word will can also loosely be translated dream. So when we pray, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We can also be praying, your kingdom come, your dream for your world. May it come true in us. Think about a mom who has great dreams for a child. Think about a coach who has great dreams for his team. Think about a teacher who has great dreams for her class. Think about an artist who has great dreams for that novel or that painting or that work of music that she's working on. Now that also means responsibility. I dream it for you and I hand it to you, but you must act on it as well. Here's what McLaren says. The call to faith is the call to trust God and to trust God's dreams enough to realign your dreams with His. And then we can learn to live out the dream of God together. Imagine you as a character in the dream of God. God dreaming of you and you invited to dream of Him. Stars shining bright above you. Night breezes whisper, I love you. Birds sing in a sycamore tree. Dream a little dream of me. Sweet dreams till the sunbeams find you. Sweet dreams that leave all your worries behind you. But in your dreams, whatever they be, dream a little dream of me.